0: I want to share a little bit with you about why Orphan Care Weekend is so, such a passion for me. In missions, our theme for the whole year, no matter what we're doing, is beyond me. So it's always looking at what can I do beyond myself and my sphere of influence even. So I want to share a little bit about our family with you. My husband, Jeff, and I have been married for almost 40 years. We have nine kids, five grandkids, with one on the way um, next spring. And God grew our family through adoption. When we had been, um, when our youngest biological daughter was in first grade, I really felt like God was speaking to my heart about adopting a child from China. And I shared that with my husband, and he was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. We just got our our youngest in, in school full time. And you guys, parents, you know what that means. And I said, you know, I need you to pray about it. I really feel God's calling us to this. And he was faithful in that and he prayed and he came back and said, yes, I agree with you. And we were able to adopt our daughter Beth from China almost 25 years ago. And then God opened the door for us to adopt a daughter from Korea. Then we adopted a son from West Palm Beach, Florida. Then a daughter from Nashville, Tennessee. And a son from Haiti. And our youngest, Xenia, from Hong Kong. And Each, God has graciously, graciously provided for our family and cared for us. You know, growing a family through foster care and adoption, they can be hard places. But God brought people that were present in our life to encourage us, to bring us a meal, to pray with us, and just be present with us. And I just wanted to share that with you. It's such a blessing to me how God has grown our family. So... Our guest today is Jason Johnson. He's a friend of mine. The most thing he'd want you to know is that he's a Christ follower, Christ lover. He is a dad, he's a husband. He was a pastor, full-time pastor for 14 years before stepping into another role of ministry in the field of working with churches across the United States to start adoption, orphan ministry, foster care ministries in the church Jason and his wife, Emily, and their four daughters live in Texas. I'd like you to help me welcome Jason to Timberland Church. Thanks,
1: Carrie. Well, good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you here in uh, Colorado. I'm getting a couple of days of my winter. My winter bucket has been filled. I'm ready to go back to Texas. (laughs) My wife said my girls were swimming last night, so that's that's my normal. So it's good to be with you here. I'll show you a picture of the world that I come from. help you understand a little bit of, of why I don't have any hair, and the hair I do have is gray, uh, and increasingly gray. That's my wife there in the middle, Emily, uh, who is super high capacity. As you can see, I'm here with you, which was, it's actually easy. I got up this morning, went to Starbucks, took my time. She got up this morning and dove right into that uniquely evil hour on Sunday mornings, that you parents know about, of getting your kids ready and out the door for church uh, alive. That's kind of the goal, right? Uh, That we're all still friends and we're alive. So this is the, the brood of girls that I live with, and then that's my buddy Jordan there in my arms. Uh, the girl down front in the, pi- in the pink glasses uh, is uh, Marley. We'll share a little bit more of her story towards the end. Uh, she came to live with us when she was three days old, and she's never left. She's since become our daughter. Uh, the other three uh, shorter girls there are biological daughters. And then on the left there is Guiana. Guiana came to move in with us when she was 17. She'd grown up in foster care since she was six. When she came to live with us, her little boy that I'm holding, Jordan, he was one week old. Uh, because who wants a... Uh, uh, 17 year old with a long track record and a baby. Um, no one. They're almost impossible to place until my wife finds out about situations. And maybe you're married to one of these guys, or guys, maybe you are the, the one who my wife says, I've become aware of a situation, and that's basically it. That's kind of how things work. It's not, um, let's pray about it, let's talk about it. Of course, we do, but it's pretty much done, right? So let's just. Uh, move on, right? So she becomes aware and, and we do that. And we'll share a little bit more of Guiana's story and our story together as we as we go through this morning. And so here's our goal today. Our goal today is that we really begin to explore, uh, maybe a unique and, and, and intricate level, uh, really what Jesus has done for us. Because at the end of the day, when we begin to ask ourselves, why would we do for others? Why would we step out into uncomfortable places? Why would we step into hard places for the sake of others? At the end of the day, the answer to that question, why, uh, is ultimately rooted in what Jesus has done for us. And it begins to change some of the questions that we ask. You know, when we begin to really understand and deeply celebrate what Jesus has done for us, the question becomes less about why would we do for others, and it's more about, you know what, in light of what Jesus has done for me, why would I not? Why would I not for others? And so we're going to pick apart a piece of scripture here that, that Paul very beautifully kind of unpacks for us just the comprehensive nature of what Jesus has done for us. And what we're going to see is that he has stepped into our story and he has changed every aspect of it. We're going to see how he changes our past, how he has changed our present, and how he has changed our future. And then we're going to draw out some implications of that uh, for us as individuals and for us as families and then for us even as a church. What does it mean for us to be deep, deep celebrators of what Jesus has done for us? but also wide, wide demonstrators into the lives of others of what Jesus has done. So Galatians chapter 4 is where we'll spend most of our time. And we'll start in verse 4 where it says, "When When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law. So this is my favorite Christmas verse. And Christmas is next month. How cool is that, right? That's crazy. Awesome. Love it. And here's what we celebrate at Christmas. Essentially what Galatians chapter four, verse four says, it says, when the fullness of time had come, that literally means at just the right time. So that language there could be read, at just the right time, God sent forth his son. In other words, Jesus was born, born of a woman. We know that woman's name to be Mary, so there's Christmas. At just the right time, God sent Jesus to be born. And then it says, born under the law. And so the best way to understand that is, is this idea that Jesus was born underneath the weight of condemnation. And we don't really talk about that a whole lot at Christmas because it's, not, it's just not very happy Santa Magi talk, right? We save that for Easter, but it's true all the time. Jesus was very clear in his ministry. I have come into this world to lay my life down as a ransom. I have come into this world to die for you. And so what we celebrate at Christmas is that at just the right time, Jesus was born to die for us. If you were in a seminary class, the, the professor might say, this is what we call the doctrine of incarnation, this idea that God would wrap himself up in flesh. He would incarnate himself into our story. So the best way for me to understand uh, very complex things is, is in, in the simplest ways that I possibly can. So in Texas, we can go to Tex-Mex restaurants, which is basically fake Mexican food uh, uh, that's more palatable for us Americans. And you can order uh, chili con carne which literally means chili with beef or chili with meat. It's the same root word, con carne, that we get the, the word incarnate, incarnation. So the idea is that it's God with beef on. It's God with meat on, okay? And my seminary professors uh, probably roll over in their graves every time I talk about that in that way. They're just cringing. I can't believe he keeps doing that. But you'll never eat chili con carne the same. So I've actually given you a gift this morning. If nothing else, I've given you the gift of never eating beef or meat the same. You'll always remember the work of Jesus on your behalf. And I think that's, that's a good thing, right? This is the idea that Jesus would, or that God would step out of his glory, that he would wrap himself up in our humanity. And so here's, this, here's what we're, the picture that we're seeing and what we celebrate at Christmas, that God steps into our story at just the right time, wraps himself up in our brokenness, carries our brokenness to the cross, is broken by our brokenness so that we don't have to be broken anymore this is the good news of the gospel in this we see this 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 idea that God says to us look I see you where you are and I'm coming after you here's God in his glory and he looks down on us and our broken humanity he says I see you where you are and I'm coming after you literally I'm stepping into your story and everything is going to change so maybe for some of you this morning that's all that you need to know about God You just need to be reminded that God is not the kind of God who says, I see you where you are in your brokenness, your shame, your guilt, your anxiety. Now, if you just clean yourself up enough and get your act together enough, maybe one day you can work your way to where I am. That is not the God that we serve. The God that we serve says, I see you in your brokenness, your shame, your embarrassment, your anxiety, your failures. I see you in all of that, and I'm stepping right into the middle of it. I am chasing you down. That God is the kind of God who sees hard places and broken people, and he moves towards them and not away from them. This is just who God is and what God does. He's constantly moving closer and closer to the hardest and most broken places. I see you where you are, and I'm coming after you. At just the right time, he steps into our story, and everything changes. Past, present, and future. And so, verse 5, Paul begins to kind of outline this a little bit for us. In verse 5, he says, To redeem those who were under the law. Remember, under the law, under this weight of condemnation, Jesus was born underneath that in order to rescue us out from underneath it, to redeem us so that we might be children of God. We might be sons of him and daughters of him. So under the weight of condemnation, there was odds and enmity between us and God. And Jesus steps into that, puts that on his back, is crushed by it on the cross so that we could be introduced into his family. That we could experience the rights and privileges of being sons and daughters of him. So the first thing that happens when Jesus steps into our story is that our past is redeemed. It's not that our past is, uh, is erased. It's not that Jesus says, I want you to pretend for the rest of your life like none of that ever happened. I don't think that's what the gospel does. Instead, what the gospel does is it redeems our past. It it changes our relationship with our past. So Romans chapter 8 says this, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life has set us free. We've been set free. There's no condemnation. So here's what this means. We can look back on our past, and it's no longer a source of condemnation. It's now a platform of celebration. We can look back on our past and say, wow, look at what Jesus has done. I was once dead and now I'm alive. I was blind and now I can see. I was, I was lame and now I can walk. My past doesn't drag me down. Jesus doesn't say forget it like it never happened. He says, no, I want you to change your relationship with your past. It doesn't condemn you anymore. It actually uh, drives you into worship of him that much more. Look at what Jesus has done. Not long after Guiana moved into our home, she knocked on our door late one night. Our bedroom door and parents you know this it's like that time of night where it's like okay um they're all down they've all eaten today they've all uh survived today we made it another day now leave us alone kind of thing right it's that time of night and she knocks on our door late at night and she says the three words that terrify me the most living in a majority female home she says can we talk now nothing good usually follows that right (laughs) So the gut said, oh, really? And, of course, we said, of course, come on in. And she says, and we say, hey, what's on your mind? And she says, hey, I've been thinking about what I want to be when I grow up. 17-year-old girl. Now, you got to know that this is a girl that since the age of six has had to survive each day. And when I say survive each day, I mean uh, there's no forethought of what tomorrow looks like because today I need to do whatever I need to do today to survive, steal, manipulate, fight, scratch, claw my way through today to make it through today and when all that you have is is time to survive today there's no room to dream about tomorrow and now she knocks on our door late at night and says I'm starting to dream about tomorrow so Guyana this is beautiful what's going on she says I think I want to be a caseworker I want to go into social work because all I ever had my whole life was bad ones they made things worse for me and I want to be a good one for these kids and we said "Guiana, how awful is it that the job even exists can we agree on that how beautiful would it be, though, for you to be the one to look into a kid's eyes who's just been removed from a traumatic experience and to look them in the eye and say, I get it, I understand, I've been there, and I'm going to be with you through this whole thing. How powerful is that? What struck me that night, of course, was the fact that Guiana was beginning to dream about her future. And now three years later, she continues that conversation. But what struck me even more that night is that she was dreaming about her future that because of her past. I've had a really awful life and I can let it drag me down and destroy me or I can redeem it and use it for good the good of others moving forward and this is what the gospel has the capacity to do in your life Jesus steps into our story and says we're going to change everything about that past context and then Paul continues and he starts talking about our present he says that we have a new present reality he says now because you are sons God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying Abba Father so the idea here is 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 that because right now, in Christ, we have the Spirit of Christ living inside of us, and it allows us to refer to God and relate to God right now, today, where you sit in an entirely new way. We can refer to God and relate to God as Abba, Father. That language, Abba, is a very tender and affectionate form of the word Father. So our translation of that word might be the word Daddy. So my girls don't call me Father, like proper British Father, right? I'd say, don't talk to me like that, right? My name is Daddy. And my 14-year-old, every once in a while, will throw out a dad, hey, dad, and I just, I just ignore her. Like, who is this man you speak of? There's no dad here, right? And she'll say, daddy, and I'll say, oh, what do you need, sweetie, right? Because I'm going to ride the daddy train as long as I can. So I am father, same guy, same guy in the house. But what's more important for me to, for my girls to understand about me right now is not so much that I'm father, but that I'm daddy, it carries with it this sense of intimacy and connection and vulnerability and approachability. And so the picture that Paul is painting here is beautiful. Outside of Jesus, odds and enmity. Now because of Jesus, new present reality, intimacy and affection. A sense of security. Our past has been redeemed and our present has been shifted. We live in entirely new present reality now. We don't have to be afraid of what God thinks of us, what he, what he feels about us. We don't have to wonder if God's disappointed in us or embarrassed by us, if God's shocked by us. He's not. All of that has been poured out on the back of Jesus. And so we live now with a new sense of present security. So we step into these kids' and families' lives and we say, look, it doesn't always have to be like this. Your past, your past doesn't have to define you. You don't always have to live in brokenness. And then we introduce them as best as we can into a new present reality that says you can just rest in the fact of knowing that you are loved and accepted. You don't have to prove anything. You don't have to fight today. You can just find the sense of security. And then Paul continues on and he starts to talk about our future starts to talk about our future in Christ. So you're no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. An heir is someone who lives today with the assurance of what's to come tomorrow. So our past has been redeemed. Our present has been shifted. And then Paul starts talking about our future. Most of the time in Scripture when we read about our future to come in Jesus, we see a couple of promises. The first promise that we get is one that we all really like. It's a really good promise. It's this idea that glory is coming. That while our outward bodies waste away, our inward souls groan for this glory that will be revealed, Scripture says. And I don't know a whole lot about Scripture, but that Scripture makes sense to me the older I get. Just hit 40. Our outward bodies waste away. Go, oh, yeah, that makes sense now. Get it. So we can all agree on that one. It says our present struggles right now have a certain weight to them, a very real and heavy weight. But that weight pales in comparison to the weight of glory that will one day be revealed. So the first promise that we get about our future is that glory is coming. We are heirs of a glory that is coming. Here's how I like to think of it. It's almost like this this idea that Jesus uh, over and over in Scripture is just promising us, hey, listen, guys, I win over all of this. Like, glory is coming. Because the second promise is a little harder to swallow. The first promise is that glory is coming. The second promise is this. uh, Hey, it's going to be a little bumpy along the way. And it's going to become increasingly bumpy along the way. The world is going to hate you. People will turn their back on you. But glory is coming. It's not going to be, you're going to take up your cross daily. It's going to be hard and heavy at times. But I win over all of this. You know, we live in a culture now that is constantly inundating us with a fear. You don't have to look hard or listen hard to see it or to find it. We're constantly being told of all the things that we need to be afraid of. And we're being trained to make decisions uh, out of fear. So it's, it's, you need to be really, really afraid of what's going to happen if you don't elect me or vote for me or pass this. Some kid in South Dakota, I'm just making this up, gets a cold. And that's the next swine flu that the 24-hour news stations are telling us is going to wipe out all of humanity, right? Right. The market takes a downward turn and, and you need to buy your, your beans and your gold bars now because you're going to be eaten out of the gutter next week if you don't, right? We're just constantly being told of all the things that we need to be afraid of. And then we, we, see, this, we see Jesus kind of step into all of this and say, hey, look, it's going to be a little bumpy along the way, but here's the good news. I went over all of this. You don't have to be afraid. And so we step into the lives of these kids on one level to say it doesn't always have to be like this. On another, on another level to say, look, you can live today with a sense of security and knowing that you're loved and that there are people around you. And hey, listen, you don't have to be afraid of what's to come tomorrow anymore. Hey, Guyana, you don't have to fight anymore. You don't have to wonder where you're going to eat, if you're going to eat tomorrow, who's going to be there or not be there for you tomorrow, where you're going to sleep tomorrow. You don't, have to, you don't have to worry anymore. You don't have to be afraid of the future. So she knocks on our door late at night and says, I'm starting to dream about the future because she's starting to become less and less afraid of of it. So when Jesus steps into our story, he says at just the right time, I'm stepping into your story, wrapping myself up in it. And we together are going to collectively begin to write an entirely new story together, past, present, and future that we become deep, deep celebrators of that in our own lives. And I wish we had time to go around the room, and I think most of us could share a testimony about how at just the right time, Jesus stepped into my story. And we could all pinpoint that, like to the day probably. This is the moment he stepped into my story, and everything has changed since then. At just the right time, he steps into our story, and everything changes. That leads us to James 1.27. This classic verse that we're all very familiar with uh, that talks about how uh, one of the purest and most undefiled uh, forms of our religion. This word here means an outward display of something that's inwardly true. So what James is describing here for us is this: he's essentially he's saying one of the uh, when we when we step in, when we visit orphans and widows, when we get involved in the lives of the most vulnerable and pushed aside in our in our society, when we step into those hard places, it puts something very true about who God is on display with a purity and an undefiledness. You see that? Because people look at you and say, why are you doing that? Why are you intentionally moving towards hard places? Why are you intentionally wrapping yourself up in the brokenness of others? And we have this really beautiful answer now where we get to be able to say, look, the question is not so much why would I, but in light of what Jesus has done for me, the question now becomes why would I not? Why would I not? And so James is is essentially saying to us that one of the purest and most undefiled outward demonstrations of the gospel that this world will ever see is when you and I see hard places and broken people and move towards them, not away from them. Why? Because that's exactly what God has done for us in Jesus. This is who he is and what he does. And it flips the script on how you and I live in this world because we are constantly being told, overtly and sometimes subtly, that the objective of our lives is to be as comfortable and convenient and safe as possible. Do good, make good grades, go to a good school, get a good degree that gets you a good job with a good salary, marry a good guy or girl, have a few good kids, live in a good neighborhood, go on good vacations, have a good retirement, hopefully die in your sleep seems like the easiest way to go, (laughs) and everything will be good. And throughout the course of all of that, do whatever you have to do to avoid hard and broken things. Move across town if you need to. Pull your kids out if you need to. You set up a life where you can effectively live it as if nothing hard and broken around you exists. And then James steps in and Jesus steps in and the gospel steps in and says, what if we turn that upside down completely? What if we leaned into hard? What if we moved towards the broken? What if we stepped into the lives of the most vulnerable around us and then people around you will say why are you doing that that's crazy because it's, you're breaking the matrix right let me we say well let me tell you why let me tell you why so the implications on us are clear that we would become these kind of people that do this but the applications are broad here's the beautiful thing about the diversity of the body of christ that we all celebrate the same gospel but we all don't demonstrate that gospel in the same way It's this collective diversity coming together for the common good. So as an example of not long ago, I was in Kansas City. If you've ever been in Kansas City, they love their barbecue. Like, hey, calm down about the whole barbecue thing, right? I'm tired of talking about it. I was at a large church function. They were hosting a dinner for several hundred foster families, and it was catered by a barbecue restaurant. The owner of the restaurant came up to me afterwards and said, hey, we're a member of this church. I own the best barbecue restaurant in Kansas City. Uh, And we've told our church that anytime there's a function like this or anytime a family brings a new placement into their home, uh, our restaurant's going to be the first there delivering the best barbecue in Kansas City for free. So here's a guy who said, look, I know what I can't do. We're not in a position to bring children into our home right now, but I know what I can do. And what I can do, I can do better than anybody in the city. And I'm going to do it for the common good. And I love that. This is a guy who said, I'm going to get creative. What do I already have at my disposal? What's my passion? What's my business? What, what do I already love to do? And how can I do what I already love to do and bring it into this space that blesses those who are, who are working here? Because that's how the body of Christ works. Romans 12 says it this way. It says that we are all we have one body but many members. We don't all have the same function. Though, one, though many, we are one body in Christ. We are individually members of one another. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. So let us use them. Elsewhere in scripture, it says that we are like ears and eyes and hands and feet and toes, different parts all coming together for the proper functioning of the whole. And so what does that mean for you? It might mean that you need to be the best toe that you can be so that somebody else can be the best ear that they can be and somebody else can be the best eye that they can be. What's your barbecue story? What's your barbecue story? It might mean that you pray for families. It might mean that you financially support uh, this ministry so that you can remove the financial barrier on families who want to bring kids into their home. It might mean that you bring meals, you wrap around them in tangible ways. You signed up for that that platform where you can be notified of needs and you can help meet those needs. That you get creative. It might mean that you you own a business and you want to use that business in this space for the common good. It might mean that some of you know and you've known for a while that you need to open your home and bring kids in. And for whatever reason, you've just kind of been delaying and questioning and wondering. And maybe this morning is the morning that you say, you know what, we're done delaying. We've known this for a long time. It's just time for us to do this. You need to be the best ear that you can be so that somebody else can be the best eye that they can be. Because that's how the body of Christ works. There are tables out in the hall that we want to encourage you to stop by. Because they can help you begin to discover what part of the body you might be. We're not all called to do the same thing. But we're all capable of doing something. This is how the body of Christ works. We're all capable of doing something. From students to senior citizens, married to single, young to old, irregardless. We are the body together and we all need each other to play their part. Let me close with a story. When I was nine years old, I learned that the man I had grown up calling dad was in fact not my biological father. It was this impromptu meeting between my sister, my mom, my dad, and I, and I learned that the first two, two and a half years of my life were marked by vices at the hands of a biological father, that you named the vice, and he excelled at it. He was a professional, unfortunately. It left my mom to be alone with a very broken story and two super cute pieces of baggage to go along with it, older sister, and then the cuter of the two, me, right? (laughs) Child number two is in the room. It's always, you know, you tried once, you thought you could do better, so you had number two, that was me. She strolled her, uh, her broken story and her two kids into a church in North Dallas one day, trying to pick the pieces of her life back up together. She met a young worship leader on stage. They developed a friendship, developed a relationship, eventually fell in love and at the age of 23 years old, my dad would get down on his knee and he'd look my mom in the eye and say, I know your story, I love you because of your story, let's begin to write an entirely new story together. He would turn to take my, ask to take my sister's hand to become his daughter and my hand to become his son. And he would effectively say to us at just the right time, I wanna step into the story and we're gonna begin to write an entirely new one together. He would marry my mom, adopt my sister and I, and when he adopted us, he changed my first middle and last name. I have two birth certificates and two different sets of names. The old is gone. Your past no longer defines you. It's an entirely new present reality. And the future trajectory of my life has been altered in more ways than I could possibly count on this side of eternity. Because this man said at just the right time, I'm going to step into this story, and we're going to write a better one together. April 25, 2012, we opened our home to our very first foster placement uh, who never left. She was three days old at the time. She has now become our daughter. We realized that moment that everything was about to change in our life because you cannot, you literally cannot hold a tragically broken story in your arms and not have everything that you've ever thought about everything completely dismantled underneath the weight of their brokenness. She ruined our lives that night in the best of ways. As we're sitting at the table filling out papers, as she's over in the corner and our other girls are doting over her, it dawned on me that we're being given the opportunity to do for her what my dad did for me some 30 years before and what Jesus has done for all of us. To say, I see you where you are, I'm coming after you, I know your story, I love you because of your story, let's begin to write an entirely new story together and at just the right time, we got to become a part of this girl's story and she got to become a part of ours. I've often wondered where would I be right now and what would I be doing right now had my dad not stepped into my story. I've often wondered where would our daughter be right now and some of these other girls that we've had the privilege of caring for, where would they be right now and what would they be doing right now had we not been given the privilege to become a part of their story. And this is the question I wanna leave all of us with tonight, this morning. This compelling question that each of us can ask in our own hearts, where would I be right now had Jesus not at just the right time stepped into my story And changed everything about it. And I really want to encourage you to literally try to take yourself back to that place. Where everything began to change because of Jesus. Past, present, and future. And I'm convinced that when you're able to answer that question, it becomes the framework and the foundation upon which the questions begin to change for you. And it becomes less about why would we do for others. And it becomes more about, gosh, in light of what Jesus has done for me, why would I not? Let me pray. Father, we ask for clarity. We ask for wisdom and courage. That by your spirit, you would help us identify our something. That we would be deep, deep celebrators of the gospel, the good news of what you've done for us. And we would also be wide, wide demonstrators of that into the lives of others. And that you would help us by your spirit find our something that we can bring to the table for the common good and for your glory. It's in your name that we pray, amen.